Bibles to Romans chapter 2, and we'll stand and read our text. And I have up on the screen Romans 2, 1 through 4. That is our text. But if you will bear with me, I would like to read the entirety of the context, which is Romans 2, 1 through 16. So follow along in your Bibles as I read Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. We read, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. For all who sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law instinctively uh, do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So ends the reading of God's word. May we be blessed as we study it together. You may be seated. <clears throat> the wrath of God and judgment of God is not generally the subject of preaching in most churches today. It just happens to be the subject we've preached on for the last five weeks. It is the subject that Paul continues to carry on in our text today, but it ought not to surprise us as to speak of God judging people to declare to the, the world that God gives people over to further sin and deeper depravity hardly aligns with being what we've called today is politically correct. It goes against the idea of being tolerant of others, at least in the world's eyes, and it certainly is not progressive for the times. We've been told that the church is on the wrong side of history, and I have to chuckle because we already know how history ends, and we know what side we're on, and it's not the losing side. To speak of the wrath of God does not engender warm feelings of love and peace. It does not make people feel good about themselves. It certainly does not make us feel good about loved ones for whom we have concern that they may yet be under the wrath of God. While the gospel, the good news of God's saving grace through faith in Jesus Christ by which we are forgiven our sins and clothed with the righteousness of Christ, made fit for heaven, most certainly causes us as believers great joy and praise to the God who saves. We need to remember something. We need to remember that the gospel was never given in order to increase our self-esteem. The gospel was not given to make us feel good about ourselves. In fact, both top the both topics of the wrath of God as well as the gospel of God, both of those topics are intended to make us understand this one thing, our inherent wickedness 
Because if you do not come to grips with the inherent wickedness that dwells in your soul, you will not respond to the gospel of God, and you are still under the wrath of God. We need to understand our desperate need for Christ as our only hope and the only Savior. Until we come to say with the prophet Isaiah, who in light of seeing the trice holy God, saying, seeing the, the declaration, holy, 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 what does he say? He says, woe is me, for I am ruined. I ask you this morning, have you seen yourself as ruined because until you see yourself as ruined apart from Christ, you cannot be remade by Christ. We will not be moved to repentance. We will not sense any real need to trust completely in the work of Christ alone who died for us so that we might now live for him in totality. If we are to be saved, it must come with the acknowledgement that God's wrath is a biblical truth and God intends for us to know that truth so as to lead us to salvation, to lead us into sanctification so that we might live more and more like Jesus. The subject of God's wrath is heavy. It makes us feel uncomfortable. But let me tell you something. That's the point. If you do not feel the burden that you would have apart from Christ, you don't understand the deceitfulness of sin and the sinfulness of sin. Last week we concluded Romans 1 and looked at Paul's detailed accounting of what it means when we read that phrase, God gave them over. God gave them over, we read, to lustful impurity. God gave them over Paul says, to degrading passions, and God gave them over to the depravity of their minds. Verses 24, 26, and 28 of chapter 1. This is what happens every time to those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And what is the result? The result was stated for us in verse 32 that those who practice such things, I want you to hold on to that if you look at verse 32 of chapter 1, those who practice such things, because Paul's going to come back to that, are worthy of what? Death. Eternal separation from the blissful presence of God. I had, uh, met with a brother uh, a couple of days ago, and we talked about this, that, that hell is not, death is not, the separation from God in, in entirety. It's a separation from the blissful, joyful presence of being redeemed by Jesus Christ and to dwell in all of the blessings of God because let me tell you what eternal death is. It is the eternal suffering of God's wrath. There is no relief. The worm never dies. The fire is never quenched. For all who practice such things... This is your life. You are worthy of death. I would remind you that the words of Romans 1 were first read to those believers in Rome. And as they heard those words, I would imagine the congregation was in large nodding their heads in affirmation. Yes, God gave them over. Yes, God gave them over. We're in full agreement with what we're hearing from the Apostle Paul, that people who are as wicked as, the, as they are in Romans 1, those who are filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, those who are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice, who are gossips and slanderers and haters of God, who are insolent and arrogant and boastful, who are inventors of evil and disobedient to parents, those who are without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Yes, Paul, we agree. Such persons are worthy of death. And they probably said, can I hear a amen for those early Roman Baptists? And then when the preacher or whoever read the letter came to the first word of what we have now here in Romans 2, Therefore, I bet they thought that now Paul was going to speak to them of how God would reward those who were not like those in Romans 1. 
Paul was now going to speak uh, about not all the bad stuff, but those who would now be considered the righteous, particularly in comparison to those vagabonds just described. To be sure, this is speculation on my part, and I do apologize for that, but Romans 1.32 does sound like a climax, doesn't it? That those who practice such things are worthy of death. Amen. Therefore, let me give you some cheery things. If you think that Paul has exhausted himself on describing the desperate state of all humanity, you will be disappointed. Paul does not move on to tell his readers how wonderful they were and how God was going to bless them beyond all measure for not being like the wicked of Romans chapter 1. Rather, Paul continues now in Romans 2 by accusing them. Are you ready for this? You who think you're better than those in Romans 1, you do the same things that are worthy of death. Wait a minute. Now you're stepping on toes. What do you mean, Paul? So rather than meriting God's reward, Paul says you are actually inviting the wrath of God upon yourselves. Romans 2 actually continues Paul's diatribe of the universal condemnation of all men, revealing why all people everywhere are guilty before God without exception, therefore under his wrath, and how all must receive the good news of the gospel if they are to be saved. Paul presses the issue of the universality of the fallenness of humanity so that, according to Romans 3.19, every mouth may be closed and all the world may be accountable. That is, all the world will be held guilty before God. That's what Paul is doing. He is erasing every single minutia of what people might think would cause them to not need a savior. He's getting rid of all of that. We cannot stress this enough that the reason Paul is so intense concerning the wrath and condemnation of God is for this purpose, that all will flee to Jesus, that all will come to the only savior of sinners for mercy and forgiveness. And to that end, what Paul describes to his readers in Romans 1 and 2 are essentially three groups of people, all of which are sinners before God. In Romans 1, verses 18 to 32, we've already looked at this group of people. They are what we call the, the, the depraved humanity. Here in Romans 2, we'll find two more groups of people that Paul says are still under God's wrath. And the first is what I would refer to as the deceived moralist. We'll define what that is, but basically people who think because they're better than the people in Romans 1 that they don't need a Savior. I'm not that bad. We'll talk about that in just a moment. And that will be followed by the deluded religionist. Uh, Paul will talk about those who are Jews in Romans 2, 17 through 29. What Paul has in view, though, is that whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, anyone now in, these, in this first section of the, the deceived moralist, anyone who sets for him up for himself a code of conduct, a standard by which he now judges himself and judges everybody else, apart from God and his word, you're under the wrath of God. When your standard of self-righteousness is your own, you are deceived because there is only one standard by which we will be judged and that's by God's law, God's ordinance, God's standard. And if you do not live up to that, you are condemned and you are worthy of death. If you assume that you're right with God because of your own code of conduct that's separate from Christ, you are actually under the wrath of God. They, these are those who are participating in what we've titled the message, sinful moralism. They are deceived moralists. They think that they're okay with God when actually they're not. Such people believe, for example, that since they've treated other people nicely and have not committed murder, that God must be pleased with them, right? You know those people. I've never killed anybody. Uh, I don't cheat on my taxes, I'm, I'm nice to my spouse. I don't kick the dog, so God has to accept me. I know that's a little bit on the uh, frivolous side, the extreme side of saying it, but that's the way a lot of people think. 
Such belief is based on their own code of morals by which God must accept them because of who they are and what they have done. And that's why we sing the hymn, Not What My Hands Have Done Can Save My Guilty Soul. These are those who regard themselves as being good people and may, in fact, be better than most. Yet, they are ignorant of the fact that from God's perspective, they are but sinners in need of a Savior. I love the words of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. I, I, I've given this this title. Maybe somebody has before. I've never seen this. But this is the Romans 3.23 of the Old Testament. What does Solomon say? There is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and never sins. So take the best one of all of us. That person, we know in this group at least, we'd say they still sin. And they're still in need of a Savior. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What Paul does here in Romans 2 then is challenge the thinking of such people who were evidently sitting in the proverbial pews thinking that they don't need Christ because they're not that bad. I suspect that there are some listening to the message today that will fall into one of these final two categories saying I'm not as wicked as those in Romans 1. I must be okay. I've gone to church enough now in my life that I must be okay. But when push comes to shove, they will be revealed as being judgmental or more dependent upon religion than their union with Christ. And Paul's point, beloved, is that even on our best days, apart from being in saving union with Christ by faith in him alone and being covered by his perfect righteousness alone, we are, like Isaiah said, completely undone before the Almighty, who is absolutely holy, holy, holy. As we come to Romans 2, let me also point out that Paul makes a change in his address, something you might not pick up, so let's note this. In Romans 1, 18 through 32, Paul speaks of the sinners in the third person. God gave them over. They are doing these things. It's always in the third person. But now I would have you note that Paul switches to the second person. And what does he say? You. He's looking, he's I got this idea that he's looking at the congregation and he says, you. He's not now addressing those outside the church still in their wickedness. He's addressing you inside the church. This is intentional on Paul's part as he is seeking not only to challenge his readers, but also to encourage them to have a dialogue. What do you mean, me, Paul? How can this apply to me? And Paul says, well, let me tell you how this applies to you. No longer are these outsiders who are involved in those very vile things of Romans 1. They are insiders, and yet they are still participating in the same things. We'll consider in our text three points, man's unrighteous judgment in verse 1, God's righteous judgment in verses 2 and 3, and God's patience in judgment in verse 4. And so our text this morning, what is at the heart of Paul's explanation is the danger of sinful moralism. To ever think, I'm okay because I'm better than that other person, is a ticket to destruction. Such sinful moralism is nothing short of judgmentalism. What is judgmentalism? Judgmentalism is looking down upon others for not living or thinking according to what we have determined to be good and proper. We don't know if it lines up with God or not. It's just this is what I think. This is what makes me feel better. Judgmentalism is the tendency of making quick and excessively critical judgments, especially moral ones on others, while you yourself still have all sorts of moral issues running around in your life. Well, let's consider our first point, man's unrighteous judgment. Look at verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you, who passes judgment... For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice, there's that word, practice the same things. That those who practice these things are worthy of death. Our text begins with that word, therefore. It links us, links us to what has been said uh, back in Romans 1 to what he's about to say. We might understand him saying, in effect, for this reason. Uh, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. Now, for this reason, you have no excuse. 
That's kind of the idea of what Paul's communicating. In Romans 1, he spoke of depraved humanity being guilty before God because of their sins, not only because of their own sins, but because they consent to and commend the sins of others. When we read Romans 1, there's certainly a, a depiction for us, is there not, of a, a dark, doomy picture of lost humanity. But we are very much aware that not all people live in such extreme darkness. We know people in our own lives that while we might see a little thing here and there from those lists in Romans 1, most of that doesn't apply to them, but they are far from Christ. And so for this reason, Paul moves on to a second group of people, those who think that they, because they are more moral than those sinners in Romans 1, they do not need Christ for his salvation. Well, let's be clear that Paul is still speaking about those who are lost. We know people that are from a worldly standard, do we not? They're good and moral people from a worldly standard. These are those who define themselves as essentially good. They would say, I'm more good than bad. And you know those people. Yeah, you'd say, yeah, that you are more good than bad. These are those who would believe that if man's goodness could be measured on a scale, that their good deeds would what? Outweigh the bad. Another term I like to use for such people and sadly, Christians get involved with this too, and that is what I, I like to call comparative righteousness. Comparative righteousness. What is comparative righteousness? That's when we, rather than looking to Christ and his standard, we say because this person is more evil, more wicked, has done more vile things than me, I look pretty good. So I compare myself to the vile sinner so that I make myself look, well, better, as long as I'm better than so-and-so, I must be right with God because God really hates that wicked person. I'm only a little wicked, and God, well, he'll forgive me of all of that. That's kind of the idea of what's going on here. Rather than comparing ourselves to Christ, we compare ourselves to others, and that is, by definition, sinful moralism. This is what it means to be a deceived moralist. Paul is about to give an indictment uh, declaring that the deceived moralist, just like the depraved humanity of Romans 1, doesn't deserve God's blessing, doesn't deserve his mercy. He deserves what? God's wrath. Because not only do they tolerate wickedness in others, they actually practice, Paul says, the very same things. And we'll, we'll look at what Paul means. Paul's argument is going to be that the deceived moralist, he who is self-righteous, is off as the most depraved of humanity and therefore is just as deserving of God's judgment. Well, let's look at the indication of this, the indication. Paul comes right out of the gate indicating to the moralist sitting in the pew, so that might be some of us in this room, I don't know, he comes right out of the gate saying that, trying to declare that this, the moralist has no standing by declaring, what does he say? You are without excuse. For those who think themselves better off because they are not demonstrably as sinful as the, those outside the church, Paul says you are without excuse. Now, that phrase without excuse is worthy of our attention. It's the same Greek word that Paul used previously when he defined the wicked and unrighteous of Romans 1. As you know, Paul said that there is one true living God that everyone knows, yet they reject him. Look with me back in chapter 1, verse 20, where we see the same phrase used. Paul writes, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, plain as day, being understood through what has been made so that they are what? Without excuse. Oh, okay. Those unrighteous people who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness and practice all of those things, they have no excuse. Paul says, you who think you're moral, you have no excuse. Use is the same word. The phrase without excuse is anapologetos. We, got, uh, we hear the word apologetics in there, right? It means you have no apologetics. It literally has the idea that you are legally without a defense. You're going before the judge and you have no defense for what you are doing. 
You have no apology to make. You have no answer to the charge. This legal term indicates that those who live by their own self-righteous judgment are just as guilty as those who reject God outright in Romans 1. Just as all people have access to the knowledge of God since God reveals himself in creation, just as as the knowledge of God has been clearly seen because it's evident within them, as Paul said back in Romans 1, and just because, and we read this earlier, they have the work of the law written on their hearts, chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says, because of all these things, you have no defense. Every person has some knowledge of God, of the true God, enough to hold them accountable, enough for them to sinfully ignore. And the problem is is that people do not act according to that knowledge of God. That's the problem. Rather, people choose to suppress the truth in their unrighteousness so that they end up living as if there is no God. Now, do not miss what Paul is doing by using the term in Romans 2. He's telling them that although they condemn others for their gross immoralities, they themselves are just as guilty before God. The New American Standard Bible, from which I am preaching, does us an injustice by translating the next word as everyone. You see that if you're following the NASB. You might note, if you have uh, in your Bible the marginal reading, it gives us the literal Greek that reads this, O man, therefore you have no excuse, O man, everyone who. By using O man, it is as if Paul now is pointing his finger at each and every individual. It's in the singular, O man. He doesn't have one person in mind in the, in the congregation in Rome. He's using a writing technique called diatribe in which he sets up in a, a single imaginary person by which he's addressing to represent the whole of the people. He says, therefore, you are without excuse, O man. He's gaining, he's seeking to gain their full attention. And what is the point that Paul's driving after? For those who want to justify themselves as being right with God, who think that they aren't so bad as to need salvation that Christ has offered on the grounds that they are not as bad as others, Paul says, you are a hypocrite to the highest degree. Because everyone knows, deep down, when they take true stock of themselves, that they are sinners. It's just trying to suppress it. They just try to suppress it. When we compare ourselves to others who are seemingly worse sinners than ourselves, we wrongly use that to condemn them because if that's so bad, then we can gloss over our own sin. I look pretty good. Such sinful duplicity, this, such a sinful duplicity before God. Oh man, every one of you. Oh man, every one of you who has the mindset, who engages in such behavior, you are under the condemnation of God. Having captured their attention by leaving them defenseless, Paul next states, you who passes judgment. The word judgment is the same exact word used two more times in this one verse, only it's translated in the NASB as judges. It's easier to see in the New King James, and so that's what I've offered you because I think they did a good job translating this. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Do you think Paul is on a diatribe? Do you think Paul wants his readers, does the Spirit want us to make sure this is not a description of us? The word judge in this context means to judge self-righteously. It carries the idea of one who continually passes judgment on others without really evaluating themselves. This is the same word that Jesus used in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, when he said, Do not judge, so that you will not be judged. In both Matthew 7 and in our text, the context tells us this judgment of others is by that which we condemn. It's condemnatory. It is judgmentalism. It's making those quick and excessively critical judgments, especially moral ones, on others. I have to pause and make this particular comment that nowhere in the Bible 
Nowhere in Scripture are we told that believers are not to be discerning, that we are not to make proper biblical judgments. What Jesus is addressing in Matthew 7, in these opening verses of Matthew 7, and what Paul is addressing in our text here in Romans, is judging somebody according to a standard other than that of God's. When you make yourself the arbitrator of what is good and right, you are this man. In John chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus commands us, do not judge, how does he say it? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with what? Righteous judgment. Where does righteous judgment come from? The word of God. Do not judge according to appearance, what you think, what you feel, what you see. Do not judge according to a standard other than the righteous judgment of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul reminds believers saying, but he who is spiritual judges all things. So don't ever get caught in the trap that Christians aren't supposed to judge. Absolutely you are. You are not to be judgmental. You are not to come up with a standard other than that of God's. And your goal is simply to declare what the judge has declared. Here's what God's word says. What both Jesus and Paul speak about and against is proclaiming moral standards that even we who proclaim them have a hard time living up to, and yet we condemn others when they fall into that sin. It is the do as I say, not as I do philosophy. When we judge others according to our own self-righteous standards, we find ourselves condemning others, which is an indication that something is dreadfully wrong. I, I would just say this. Um, my wife and I were reading a book last night, and um, one of the chapters talk about, and we're going to talk about this in, in just a bit more, but rather than write out condemning somebody else or judging somebody else, you should first be suspicious of the sin that dwells within you is the issue with me. So Paul brings this indictment. Verse 1 closes with the indictment, the charge, the reason why the moralist is without excuse before God when he judges others critically. He says, for, this is about to tell us the reason, in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. Or more literally, we would read it, in that which you judge another, you call down judgment on or against yourself. Why? Because, and here's the charge, this is what Paul declares, for if you are outside of Christ, for you who judge, practice, present tense, active verb, meaning you continually, habitually, regularly practice what? The same things. What same things, Paul? We're just in verse 1. I've spoken for 20 minutes on verse 1. We haven't gotten that far from chapter 1, verse 32. Those same things back in chapter 1. Talk about a verbal body blow. He's deflating these people. But I hear a complaint. I can sense the raising of hands to ask the question, how, how is this so? Truly the self-righteous, the self-inflated moralist cannot be said to practice each and every one of the sins he condemns others for practicing, can he? At issue is not his committing the same exact sin that he is necessarily condemning, at issue, beloved, is that he condemns sin in others while failing to look at the sins in his own life. If the self-righteous seriously look at the sin in his own heart, then he would discover a multitude of offenses that he's guilty of, aware, uh, guilty of as well. This is especially true in view of the fact that in the final day, God will judge according to Romans 2.16, which we read. Are you ready for this? Talk about a verse that ought to bring a sense of fear and trembling to you, particularly if you are outside of Christ. God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. Would you want everything you've ever thought about exposed on these screens for all of us to see? Do you have secrets that you would just prefer to be buried, locked away in your mind? Do you know who knows all of those secrets? God. And if you think that you're good enough to not need Christ, you have another thing coming to you. God will take all of those secrets and they will be exposed. And you will be shown to be the sinner that you are. And if you have not trusted in Christ, you will stand condemned 
and suffer the wrath of God. Let me remind you that the sins of Romans 1 are certainly not all that secret, are they? Those are kind of in-your-face sins. But the sins of the self-righteous, while they may at times be overt, they can often be the secret sins of the heart. The point is that whether your sins are overt and vile or whether they are more inward and hidden as they are here in Romans 2, all such sins, every sin, deserves the wrath of God. Paul reminded everyone in that congregation in Rome that they were capable of unbiblically judging others. We need to be reminded we are capable in this room of unbiblically judging one another. And each one of them who so judged others, Paul says, you are guilty of sin yourself. Evidently, there were some in that congregation who were passing such judgment on others. Their sin was not simply such self-righteous people wrongly judging others it seems clear from the stern tone of Paul that while there were those uh, in the church that may have been caught up in the sins of Romans 1 he was now chastising others in the body who were saying yeah I'm glad I'm not them go get them Paul you tell them how bad they are and call them to repent their smugness as they justified that they were above reproach what happens, beloved, is that their self-righteousness caused them to underestimate the depths of their own sin. And so I say to you, beloved, your self-righteousness will cause you to underestimate the depths of your own sin. This is the dilemma that plagues all people, the tendency to see sin, the sins of others as greater than your own. And let me tell you, it comes natural. I'm much better at seeing the sins of Brett than I am to seeing the sins of myself. Uh, we can, I'll tell you all day long, right? But he can turn the tables on me. We're very good at identifying the sins of others. Let's consider again the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Jesus said, do not judge so that you will not be judged. Then he says, for in the way you judge, the manner in which you judge, if it's self-righteous judgment, you will be judged how? Self-righteously, right? And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And then notice what he says. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? The log. I mean, can you imagine trying, if I, I you got a speck there, brother, but for me to come and look at it, I got to bash him in the head with my log. Isn't that what Jesus said? I'm so caught up with what's the little speck in his eye, I'm going to bang him over and over with the log that's in my eye. That's what Jesus is getting after. So what does he say? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. And what does he say? You're a hypocrite. Notice what he says. First, take out the log. Take the log out of your own eye. Step number one. What sin is in my life that I need to deal with and take before God so that if I'm capable of going to my brother, I don't beat him over the head with the log of my own sin? It doesn't say not to help the brother, right? First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So Jesus doesn't command us, never judge. He says, never judge self-righteously. Never judge without first examining yourself. Don't ever judge without thinking, you know what? I am a sinner, and I ought to be suspicious that when I see the sin in someone else, that I'm going after that in order to somehow placate the sin in myself, that I don't have to deal with this because I'm, I'm going after, I'm going to help my brother in his or her sin. Genuine self-examination must take place. Then and only then can you see clearly enough to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus was so concerned about the sin of self-righteousness that he made it a theme in the Sermon on the Mount. Look with me at Matthew chapter 5, verses 20 through 22. And we read this about from Jesus. Jesus said, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That was a blow to the Pharisees standing there. He's basically saying their righteousness is not righteousness at all. Your righteousness, you think that they're going to heaven, they're not. 
because their righteousness is self-righteousness. And then he goes on to say, You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And notice the progression. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to end up where? To go into the fiery hell, which is what? An expression of God's wrath. Jesus will go on, verse 27, giving another example. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I think one of the points Jesus is making is that someone may easily condemn a person for murder, and rightfully so. It's wrong. But that same person fails to recognize that they're being angry with a brother is regarded as before God as just being just as guilty as that murderer. Jesus equates the act of murder as simply the fullest expression of the sin of anger in the heart. That little defiant child who just stomps his feet and gives you that look, that sin is the same sin that leads the murderer to murder. We condemn the womanizer and the adulterer, but the same sin that causes the womanizer to be what he is is the same sin as the closet guy with the pornography going on. The lust in the heart. And all of that, Jesus says, and Paul says, don't compare yourself to how bad others look. Compare yourself to the word of God. Compare yourself to Christ. And know that the root of all sins need to be rooted out of your own heart. beloved, or I guess I should say, oh man, any one of us who comes to believe that our own sin is not so bad as to invite the wrath of God, and to think that not living as bad as others coupled with what we see as our own good works will exempt us from the wrath of God, you are deceived. No one is saved by not being as bad as others. You're only saved by the extraordinary goodness of Christ. No one is saved by his good works. He's only saved by the good works of Christ. And while we must discern and biblically judge according to God's word, beloved, our temptation is to regard others as being worse than ourselves and that somehow we've earned some kind of favor from God for not being as bad as they are. You've earned nothing because you're not as bad as someone else. Because you, you are worse than Christ. Because Christ is the only holy, the only righteous, the only good. This is man's un, unrighteous judgment. And to think like this while judging others for their sins is to condemn, call down judgment upon yourselves. Well, let's look at our second point, God's righteous judgment. Verses 2 and 3, God's righteous judgment. In contrast to man's unrighteous judgment, Paul goes on to explain what those in the church already know. That God's judgment is righteous. Would you agree? Okay, everybody agrees God's right judgment is righteous. We read in verse 2 that very statement. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. If we are to get things right, we must first have our own twisted ideas of judgment corrected by what God truly recognize it or truly recognizing God's righteous judgment. And Paul begins with an argument by speaking here of the general innate knowledge which all people possess to some degree as image bearers of God. Everyone knows that there's a, a righteous standard beyond ourselves, and it belongs to God. Let's look at that awareness. Paul says, and we know to indicate that this is what all people know, what all people are aware of as image bearers of God. What is it, Paul? We know the judgment of God, or perhaps better stated, the judgment that belongs to God. The word translated know means to speak of a common understanding, something everybody is aware of. It's a, an obvious, a self-evident truth that God rightly judges 
certain sin. Uh, everybody agrees the murderer should be condemned, right? I mean, that's true of every culture. If you murder, that should be condemned. Well, what is the self-evident truth? That all who practice the vices of found in Romans 1 deserve God's judgment. The moralists would agree with such point. They would not at this point. God's judgment, Paul says, rightly falls. Or a better way of saying this would be, is based on truth. According to the truth, that all who do such things deserve God's wrath. All moralists, those who regard themselves by virtue of being better than others, not as bad as others, they all agree that God's judgment rightly falls or is according to the truth against all who practice such things. Paul is establishing a point of agreement with his readers. They would agree with this thought. This is the awareness that leads us, though, to the accusation. Here comes the rub. Here comes the catch. Paul kind of brings them in. They were already kind of reeling from verse 1. Paul comes back and says, you all agree that there are sins for which God rightly judges, right? They all say, amen. And now... Paul comes in with verse 3, and he's again pointing his finger, as you'll see in just a moment, a second time, saying you all are guilty of the same things. It might not be to the same extent. It may not be to the same degree, but when God looks upon the hearts of men, what does he see? If they are not in Christ, he sees their sin. And so he says, but do you suppose this, O man? When you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Paul's point is that for anyone to pass judgment on the sins of others, as if that means they do not need the salvation that comes from Christ, while they practice those very same kinds of sins, is to condemn themselves. Paul's readers would have agreed again with Romans 1. They cannot escape the judgment of God. But now Paul is saying, do you not see that if you are hiding these things in your own heart, you cannot escape the judgment of God either. You're just as guilty. Let me give you a biblical example of what this looks like because, well, the Bible gives us an example. How many of you remember an encounter between David and the prophet Nathan as recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 12? David had been told by Nathan the prophet of an account that there was a rich man who, who had stolen and then killed a poor man's pet lamb. David was outraged. What do you mean? The rich man who had everything took the poor man's lamb and slaughtered it? This man deserves to die. You read the account. David's just coming unglued. David passed judgment on the rich man for doing such a wicked thing. Then Nathan comes along and learns, uh, David actually hears what Nathan says, and David comes to understand that he had just condemned himself. Because what does Nathan say? You know the story. Nathan says of David, you are the man, oh man. You are the man. And David's heart must have just sank to the depths that we can't even begin to imagine. And I get that pit of despair in my stomach that almost wants me to, to lose everything that's in my stomach. David had taken the lamb, that is Bathsheba, from the poor man, that is Uriah, for his own pleasure. Therefore, when David judged the rich man in Nathan's parable, David had just judged himself. Beloved, God's judgment is based on truth, what is right. It is impartial. It makes no distinction. It does not matter whether you are rich or poor. It does not matter whether you are the king or you are a pauper. And so to answer the question of Romans chapter 2, verse 3, do you presume this, O man, that you will escape the judgment of God? The answer ought to be an emphatic no. In verse 2, we learn God judges rightly, he judges fairly and partially, that his judgment is according to the facts, it is based on the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and the truth is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and therefore all deserve God's judgment, all are under God's wrath, and all need the salvation that comes only from Christ. I am not ashamed of the gospel, it is the power of God to rescue all who will come to Christ. The sad truth is that while Paul is now directing his address to those in the church, 
There were evidently those who, because of their self-righteousness, actually believed they would escape the wrath of God. And essentially, there are two reasons for them coming to this conclusion. One is that they might have been simply ignorant of the fact, and so Paul's correcting that ignorance. But second, they thought this because they judged themselves by the wrong standard. They misunderstood the depths of their own depravity. They were judging themselves either by themselves or by others, forgetting that in the final day, the standard that will matter is not theirs, but God's. The question will not be, did I live up to my own self-imposed standards? Some of us will say, he has high standards for himself. I don't care about his high standards. I care about Christ's standards. All right? It will not be, did I live up to my parents' standards? It will not be, did I live up to my spouse's expectations? No, the question will be, have I lived up to God's standards? And when you ask the question, have I lived up to God's standards, what, what is your answer? No. When I look at my life and when you look at your life and we can take anyone, saved or unsaved, if we are going to ask the question, have I lived up to God's standard, the answer is no. I have not, I cannot live up to God's standard. Therefore, I deserve to die. I am under God's wrath. What is that standard, by the way? It's God's perfect law, summarized well for us in the Ten Commandments. And all those commandments not only judge our external actions, they actually judge our internal thoughts. They judge the intent of our hearts. They judge the musings of our minds. And Paul's point is that those who, all those except who are true Christians, if you have truly trusted in what Christ did on the cross to cover us with his own perfect righteousness, that all others will be found guilty and will be condemned and under the wrath of God. Just like verse 1, where we see Paul pointing the finger at the man, we see Paul getting in the face of these readers, as it were, seeking to get into the mind of this imaginary individual who represents the, the whole group, and he says, do you presume this? Do you actually think you're going to get beyond this? The word presume comes from our English word logic. What sort of logic are you using to think you do not need Christ, that you can go on without Christ? Do you really think you will escape the judgment of God? Do you really think this way? Paul is showing the utter foolishness of such reasoning. He's shutting it down, obliterating the false thinking that no one or that someone is able to escape the wrath of God. You may think you are better off than the vile sinners of Romans 1, but you are a sinner, and you are found in the likeness of the worst of sinners, and so you have a problem. God knows our thoughts, our intentions, and sees our every action. Beloved, our problem is we too often judge others by their actions, so I see what they're doing, but we judge ourselves by our intentions. We'll say, did you see what Ken did? Wasn't that sinful? Well, yeah, but pastor, you did. No, but that wasn't my intention. That's what we do. We pass the buck. We might fool others with our rationalization. Perhaps we might even fool ourselves from time to time, but we cannot fool God. God's judgment is always perfect, always just, always right. This is God's judgment. This brings us to the final point this morning God's patience in judgment. Verse 4, God's patience in judgment. I love verse 4. For do you think lightly? It doesn't actually, it's a great verse, but it doesn't start out so well, does it? Do you presume, O oh man, verse 3? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? It is here in verse 4 that we truly see that Paul is addressing those who think that living by their own moralism, they do not need Christ. Let's look at what Paul says is God's provision, the provision of God. Paul asks this question of the imaginary O man, saying, or do you think lightly? I've been picking on the NSB today. I'm going to pick on it some more. That's the weakest translation of the Greek I can ever imagine. Or do you think lightly? Like, do you want your toast light or dark? The word in the Greek should read this way. Do you despise? Do you scorn? Do you regard with such little value the riches 
of God. Can you see Paul just kind of the intensity? Do you really just see? You, you can take all of the riches of God and just count them as nothing? Can I tell you something about our God and his riches? This should put a smile on your face. Our God is not stingy. The riches of kindness he's lavished on us, we say. And Paul just lists three of those riches. The depth, the scope, the wonder of the richness of his kindness, of his forbearance, of his tolerance, and of his patience. The riches of God are revealed in these three ways. His kindness just speaks of his, his utter goodness. There's nothing more good than God. You, God is good. That's just, it's a definition of who he is, the moral excellence of his character, his tolerance, his, his putting up with us, his bearing with us in our sins and rebellion against him. Sometimes even as believers we still do that, don't we? And he still puts up with us. And here's the kicker. Our sins deserve his immediate condemnation. God can just snap his fingers, uh, symbolically, and say, you're done. John talks about a sin leading to death. That you could commit a sin where God says, you're gone. The word could be, uh, the, the final one, patience, his great long-suffering. I like to define long-suffering this way, his long-fusedness. speaks of having an extremely long fuse. But let me tell you something. Whether your fuse is this big or it is 100 feet long, once the fuse is lit, what's going to happen? It's going to come to an end. So his fuse may be long, but it will come to an end. And he has this great long-suffering in postponing his punishment that is deserved even now if we're not in Christ. Why is it not deserved if we're in Christ? Because Christ took our punishment. But so we know Paul's talking about those who are not in Christ. God presently has provided all humanity with these three blessings. Yet those who think themselves morally good are not knowing, it says in this text, not knowing or literally being continually ignorant and unaware of why God is forbearing, kind, forbearing, and patient. Too many presume that God's patience and his forbearance is somehow his approving of the sinner's lifestyle. Why are there so many that are moving towards transgenderism? Why are there so many that are committing abortions? Why are there so much corruption? Well, God doesn't do anything about it. He's so long-suffering, he must be okay with it. No, again, long-fused, this means what? There is an end. There is an end. They missed the point of the riches of God. Well, what's the point? And that brings us to the purpose of God. What is the purpose of God's kindness and forbearance and patience? Why is God manifesting these even to unbelievers today? We see it there at the end of verse 4. Here's a singular intent of such things. It is to provide sinful man with time to repent. The reason why we don't see God just obliterating everything right now is because of the mercy of God, is because of the patience of God and the goodness of God. Repentance is the kindness of God that leads you to, here's the singular intent, to repentance. What is repentance? Repentance speaks of a change of mind concerning who Christ is and what he has done. And that change of mind comes to us by the grace of God. And here's the thing. True repentance is always accompanied. This change of mind is always accompanied with a changed life. So if you say, I repent, but continue to just do the same things you've always done, you have not come to understand the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. What, Paul, what is Paul trying to explain here? Beloved, every day in the lives of unsaved people, these people who think lightly, that is, they despise the riches of the kindness of God, of his forbearance and his patience, which he displays towards them and gives them, gives them uh, as ample time to turn to Christ, they are just inviting more judgment upon themselves. 
to despise such blessings is to fail to make proper use of them. Back in chapter 3, Paul dealt with the error in thinking that if a person's life is seemingly less sinful than those found in Romans 1, they'll escape the judgment of God. Here Paul is dealing with such people's apparent ignorance as to the purpose of God's kindness and tolerance and patience. Moralists completely misread all of these kindnesses, these blessings. They come to believe that God doesn't care about the sin in their lives. And so they just come to believe that as long as I'm better than others, I'm okay. They misread God's character, not realizing that this general kindness to them was never intended to give them cause to go into further sin. It was to give them time to flee from the wrath of God to come by Jesus Christ. John MacArthur has so aptly put it this way. The purpose of the kindness of God is not to excuse men of their sin, but to convict them of it and to lead them to repentance. That should be up on the screen. The purpose and kindness of God is not to excuse men of their sin, but to convict them of it and lead them to repentance. Solomon understood this truth, so let's look at it from the scriptures itself, how the kindness of God is abused. In Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11, Solomon writes this, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly. What is that? Tolerance and patience. Therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. You see, when God is kind and says, I'm giving you time to repent, what, how do men repay that? They go and do further evil. Those who regard themselves as being righteous enough so as not to need Christ wrongly understand this benevolence, a present benevolence. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. At the same time, the kindness and the patience and the forbearance of God is being revealed. Let me share a quote by the English Puritan Stephen Sharnock. In his book, The Attributes of God, which will blow your brain away if you try to read it. So it's easier just to take quotes out of it. So here we go. Because God is slow to anger, men are more fierce in sin. And not only continue in their old rebellions, but heap new upon them. If he spared them for three transgressions, they will commit four. They invert God's order. They bind themselves stronger to iniquity by that which should bind them faster to their duty. Beloved, let us beware of being such a person. Let me make one, uh, one more appeal to the church father, Christostom, who said this, God shows his kindness in order to lead us to repentance, not in order that we might sin even more. If we do not take advantage of this opportunity, the punishment we shall receive will be all the greater. Well, this is all the time we have now in our consideration of the sinful moralist. But we have come far enough to realize that as believers, we ought not to tolerate self-righteousness and self-righteous thinking on our part. To condemn others for the sins that we ourselves maybe have once committed in previously, that's not our duty. We're not here to condemn. We're here to proclaim the gospel. We have every right to say, according to God's word, this is wrong, but here's the remedy. We are to see the sinfulness of sin, but, and, but we are to re- be reminded when we see it, save for the grace of God, there go I. And just as we have been rescued out of such sin by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, so we pray for those engaged in such sins. Again, it is not our place to condemn them because condemnation belongs to God. It is our place to share the gospel with them, to share the kindness of God that leads them to repentance and salvation. And if you are here this morning and you believe yourself good enough, better than most others, and thus not needing Christ as Savior and Lord, you have been warned today. You are still under and just as deserving of God's wrath for the wages of sin, Any sin is death. And so I call you to turn to Christ and receive the free gift of God, which is eternal life and new life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the challenge of the Apostle Paul who reminds us of some wonderful truths concerning who you are. We praise you for your kindness. We praise you 
for your tolerance. We praise you for your patience because if we are in Christ, it's because of those attributes that we are even here giving you praise today. And Father God, may it be our prayer that those who are trapped in the sinfulness of sin, that they we would not condemn them for that, that's your responsibility, but that we would proclaim the remedy that would pull them out of those things. Help us to stand for truth and to proclaim what your word says, but your word tells us that we are to go and make disciples of the nations. So help us be that people who proclaim the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that rescues people from the coming wrath. Father God, our souls can be heavy. Our hearts can be heavy at times for the souls of the lost, those who have wandered away from the faith, those loved ones who have never even considered coming to the faith. Our souls can be heavy as we think about all the difficulties this life has thrown at us and may yet throw at us. But we come to you who is our refuge, to you who is our strength, to you who is our strong tower. May we find our peace and rest in you. And then as we do that, may we be emboldened to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ so that others may be rescued from the wrath to come. As we ask this in Jesus' name.